sorry, I'm I'm a bit uh, nervous. Okay. Welcome to a new episode of the College Experience. In today's episode, I'm glad to host a former colleague who I had the luck to work with for a limited amount of time, working relatively in the same path that uh, I have uh, in my previous studies, which is communication in general. Uh, I would love to say hello, Elizabeth or Elizabetta. Hi, both are fine. <laughs> Thank you, Nora, okay. for inviting me for your podcast. I think it's an amazing opportunity and a great platform to share and especially personal experience. I think it's very valuable. Exactly. Actually, I'm learning a lot. So um, welcome, Elisabetta. And I would like to start with asking you about uh, you describing your college experience in Sweden and the difference with the experience of Poland since you've had your bachelor in Poland, right? Um, I had a part of my bachelor in Poland, but the whole program was actually based in Russia. So I have experience of actually four countries or maybe even five countries that I can compare educational systems. Oh my God, you're a treasury to me. Okay. <laughs> What's the difference between uh, you studying masters in Sweden at Lund University and let's say your voyage in the four countries of your bachelor? Um, I think first of all, when you come to Sweden, especially as a foreigner to study, you really see the importance and the emphasis of social life, which is usually is not kind of cultivated in other countries. Because, for example, when you study in other countries, uh, mainly Eastern European countries, you have quite an approach that, you know, you need to study. But when you come to Nordic countries, in my case, it's Sweden, you kind of have an approach, you know, to, you, you need to study, but, you know, you also need to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was very um, weird. It was, you know, uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, I was not yeah. sure that uh, I can have fun <laughs> when I study. <laughs> no, you can. Uh, yeah. And today I, I understand the benefit of this because it increases your results and increases your creativity. And while having fun, you can also expand your knowledge. So it's a win-win situation. Pretty good. Actually, you mesmerized me at one, you know, at one point I thought you were going all in attacking the the social life in Sweden, but then like, what? No, quite the opposite. Uh, you are finding it kind of a positive experience for, yeah. The, yeah, for the social life in Sweden. Indeed. Okay, since we're talking about uh, the social experience, uh, how would you describe the community atmosphere at Lunds University? Or did you take it by distance or? Uh, when I arrived uh, before COVID, that was partly physical, then uh, it was partly online. And then in the end, it was kind of, again, physical. So it was a combination. It was a combination mm. of social life being digital and being physical. What I can say about Lund University, we need to take, I think, <laughs> into consideration that Lund University is quite conservative university. Oh, uh -huh. really? Yes, because I had exchange in my master program in Linköping. Mm -hmm. And uh, Linköping University, it's quite a different approach to social life. So Linköping University is kind of open in that case, when Lund University is quite conservative. And the problem I had as a foreigner is that a lot of social units like, you know, student organizations or students union and etc. They are very focused on Swedes mm. or on people who are Swedish speaking. So to a certain extent, they exclude exchange students or English kind of master program students. 
Mm. And that's a kind of paradox because there are so many English master programs in Lund University. So let me get this straight. Uh, let's say that the English learners who are conducting masters are having their own gang there, while the Swiss learners are having their own as well. Mm. And there is this segregation between them. Yeah, it kind of becomes unintended and silent segregation. So you tend to, you know, collaborate more with people who are English speakers. And if Swedes are interested, they kind of jump in and then they can sustain communication in English. Or if you kind of willing to get into, you know, Swedish culture that deep that you want to kind of train your Swed Swedish, then you get into the Swedish kind of speaking society. But it is segregated and you're not integrated in student life but because you have uh, an opportunity to make it on your own so basically how it works is that you have an opportunity to become a member of uh, and be active in your social life and you have all the tools so universities still give you all the tools and you can have access to these tools so it's kind of up to you how to make it work but when you try to use all the tools you end up that language becomes a real barrier So within one community, there are two communities and you kind of become segregated. So you come oh. actually segregate from integrating in the society um, in the end. You kind of enjoy student life as much if you manage to create your own, you know, um, oh. community <laughs> with the same interests. But in the end, it's kind of, yeah, it becomes a bit uh, isolated, especially because Lund University is that big. And, you know, it has campuses in Malmo and Lund and Helsingborg in all this corner. It becomes an issue as well because mm -hmm. you're limited to the location you're staying in. It's kind of like that. Well, actually, now I know what make you get influenced uh, with your masters about, uh, you know, integration and like, yeah. <laughs> <Partly>. yeah. <clears throat> jumping then to the question about uh, your opinion about the relevance mm -hmm. of the given curricula and uh, how can the sort of education secure you a position in the job market? Oh, that's uh, a big... An endrome, I know. <laughs> It's a big field uh, because it's the same problem as with social uh, student unions. I studied international master and it's important to say that I'm not the EU member. I am from Ukraine mm -hmm. and I studied in English. Yeah. So here we have two challenges. It's a language and that's a nationality. It is in fact true that it becomes an obstacle to get a job in the EU. Mm. So even though the Lund University can have a high standard and high quality education, and it is, it sustains its standards, it gives you what it kind of promises. In the end, it's up to you how you can make it work. So you meet with organizational, bureaucratic and societal issues. Mm. And that has nothing to do with kind of education you have. Because in the end, it's about an experience in the field. It's about the knowledge you have besides your studies. It's about a number of languages you're fluent at. And it's, of course, about an employer who is willing to hire someone outside EU who might need financial and visa support. And that mm. things really affect Make because, it uh, because people, uh, employers, I mean, they have a different knowledge about how to employ a person outside EU because it's a different procedure. And many of them are not aware about that is not that hard. But many of them don't want to engage in that bureaucracy mm. uh, because bureaucracy is tough. <laughs> It's true <laughs> everywhere. Especially in Sweden, I guess. Or maybe in general, actually, in, in the general, EU countries. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, uh, you know, since you touched upon one delicate thing, which is you are in the origin, you are Ukrainian, right? Yes. Did you find any type of changes with the policy, any soft spot with how they are treating you now better than before when it comes to all this rambling? Um, the situation is a bit different with me because uh, I came to Sweden before the war started. 
and uh, I could not go back. So right now, I don't have any access to the system because I'm still waiting for kind of permission to be in Sweden for residence permit. Uh, because first, uh, who got the residence permit were people with the emergency. So who came uh, during the war uh, and uh, who had no place to stay or not money to sustain life. Since I came before, it is assumed that I have people around on my own income that, you know, I can count on. So I was not the first priority to fix, uh, documents to fix. So I'm still waiting for a decision. So I cannot actually compare because, you know, I was not applying for jobs yet with this new documents so on the um mass uh, uh, flows directive, like mass migration flows uh, directive. I was not going to hospital, for example, with these documents because I don't have them. But I know that sometimes it's hard, for example, with these new papers, what I uh, see around that people have struggles uh, with getting to the system, for example, getting the medical care as well. Uh, many hospitals are not informed how to deal with these new papers that they see. What is this mass uh, migration flow directive? And not every Ukrainian refugee can have an access to the medical care system right now because uh, according to the directive, it is less than a year for now. So residence permit is less than a year. And it means that people will not be able to receive personal number. And we know that in Sweden, without a personal number, you cannot access anything. Exactly. You're basically not even here. You are here exactly. and not here. Yeah. Exactly. And the thing is that uh, you surprised me with that thing that uh, people are having a temporary asylum. So they're going to wait and see what will happen in the future, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And for them, it's the near future since it's only one year. And um, would you rather stay here in Sweden or, or would you go back to Ukraine and start a career there? Is it something suitable for you to stay here and like continue since you already like started to grow some root here in Sweden with the masters and so? My case should be, you know, should be taken individually because even though right now uh, I am uh, seen as a Ukrainian refugee, so I end up in Sweden now as a Ukrainian refugee. But my past is connected to Sweden anyway. I had exchange here. I obtained education here and I was looking for jobs here. And for me, I know that it is hard to get a job in Sweden because I don't have a lot of years of professional experience. I would say my journey just, you know, in the beginning to create a career opportunities for me. And I am in the process of studying language, but it takes time to master a language to be able to use it at work as a professional language. Exactly. So there are a lot of obstacles, but uh, taking into consideration that I've been living in many countries and I experience many different approaches in education, in labor markets, I would like to stay in Sweden and try my best and try my luck. And it has nothing to do with uh, nowadays situation with the war in Ukraine. It's absolutely terrible. And what is happening, you know, people do not choose this and it affects a lot daily life. And it doesn't matter where, whether you're in Ukraine or whether you're outside Ukraine. So it's horrible. And maybe people will find new opportunities now being outside Ukraine. Maybe people will find new opportunities for them. But for me, it was an approach that I wanted to get a job in Sweden. And I still do. But it has nothing to do with situation in Ukraine, with the war in Ukraine specifically. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I too want to attain a job here in Sweden, but apparently I'm going to take my girlfriend and go open a restaurant in Jamaica. It's way easier, I guess. Right now, I'm, uh, I applied for master's. I'm going to start in the fall. Uh, bureaucracy is biggest obstacle for immigrants to integrate. Yeah. And it's yeah. everywhere. 
Exactly. And no idea if this is going to last or are we just going to adapt and change or what will happen. But I guess like uh, we are trained to surviving because we (laughs) are the fittest in this whole system, Darwinist system, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, there there are actually a lot of um, motivational um, speakers or coaches because this is issue not only in Sweden, it's the issue everywhere. You know, to when you're a migrant, you you go through harder kind of path, and mm. um, a lot of public figures actually mention that employers are missing the point because you are as a migrant student or as a migrant worker. If you already put a lot of effort in your education or in your internship or in certain field, you know, if you were creating a big effort, you become so hunger for, for you to pay it back. So you're so much motivated to get a job. You're so much motivated to perform. You're so much motivated to grow, to learn, to build the skills. You are much more motivated than actually the national citizen. Because national citizen has no worries about uh, losing a job and being deported from the country. When a migrant has the worry of losing a study place or a job and hence being deported from the country. You know, the survivor uh, mode is higher. And from this angle, uh, such employees can be even more efficient and more creative and, you know, with bigger ideas and a bigger energy to complement for the field, for the job. But employers are missing this point. Yeah, you're totally right. But I kind of find it as uh, a negative uh, motive because uh, your amounts of the hormones hitting in your brain because of that, the anxiety you are having because of all that, it's terribly going to backfire on you. In my case, I'm trying to, to channel this motivation into something with as a freelancer, just mm-hmm. to, to, to not to drown myself into frustration. Mm-hmm. But you really have to do something. Otherwise, you're just going to end up as frustrated and helpless, I guess. I mean, a lot of people, uh, they, they react differently, and that's definitely stress. It's stressful to be a migrant and to to study or to, you know, to find a work, but that's the path we are choosing. And um, indeed, you become already creative in kind of, you know, tackling this issue and you come up with certain activities or you you create something or you organize something or you start something and Indeed, because it's not the comfortable zone, you know, and we all know that when you're out of your comfortable zone, you grow. Indeed, indeed. No time for uh, flight. It's the fight. Okay. (laughs) Can we talk then about some of the common problems experienced by you and how approachable are the staff, faculty and administration? If we're talking about educational and things with the curriculum, you know, those type of technical problems you get while you're studying. Again, from the perspective that it's international program, the staff is um, approachable, but you need to put a lot of effort because, again, Lund University is quite conservative in this field. So it takes a lot of effort to learn how to approach. And at the same time, you also need to learn cultural codes Hmm, because Swedish cultural codes are different. And imagine if you study with like 50 different nationalities on the same international master and you have so many cultural codes to crack. (laughs) Yeah, then you already are having your other masters in semiotics, I guess. Mm. Indeed. So, you know, as I studied communication, it was a real challenge and, you know, the real practical exercise or how can I call it? I don't know, like real practice from the very beginning. So my theory started from the first day, from the first day was the same as my practical experience um, 
in the field also started from the very first day <laughs> uh, because you study communication oh. and intercultural communication is absolutely the part of it. So you kind of study the theory at the same time you have a opportunity to practice it. <laughs> uh, it was fun. It was challenging. It was fun. And I think everyone learned a lot from my program, but it's a challenge. You you need to know how to approach people, but at the same time, people who you approach also need to be open to this approach because not everyone, it's like, you know, it's a two-way road. When you learn about the cultural code and how to approach the person in this cultural code, the person also needs to will that the person is open, is open to the new experience to how you approach the person because it's different. For example, if you talk to a Swedish professor being migrant, uh, is an international student, you still bring your cultural background with you because you cannot put it away. It's a part of you. You can shape it a bit. You can adjust to a new cultural code but you will still have a part of your cultural background with you it can be temper it can be you know body language it can be anything so from this perspective a professor Swedish professor also needs to be open to receive this new cultural experience to be able to actually listen to you I guess it's, there's no harm for you to bring your body language. Maybe with time, you're losing them. This yeah, is you adjust. I also felt. Yeah, you adjust. Mm. Maybe not for the better, you know. Mm. I mean, everyone takes what a person feels like, you know. You, you adjust to what is most comfortable to you. And it's normal. It's, it's absolutely normal for you, but, but it takes time, you know. And also time to understand yourself, you know. Okay, mm, this is interesting part from this new culture. I want to take it. I want to apply it on me. But maybe other parts from this culture would be against your values. And then you were like, no, I will keep my part with me. You know, it's a combination, yeah, it's a combination indeed. But uh, uh, I hope that uh, with time we will find a healthier combination or like this stable combination. Yeah, that we are there in the middle. We are just not bleeding lots of our cornerstone because even though that we came from a cold or warm country and we had those um, normative systems, maybe most of them, most of normative courts were misleading, were wrongful, but it is what our cornerstone are built on. And the thing is, it takes time for us to, to deconstruct and reconstruct. True. I'm going to ask you a weird question because it sure. comes from the bitterness of our major that we studied in media and communication and etc. all that. So would you mind if you worked as a life coach consultant or a lifestyle consultant or all these titles that I'm still trying to process and get what they are? <laughs> Uh, I, I actually don't mind how you call a person, you know, I mean, as far as it doesn't harm you or doesn't harm others. I mean, I would segregate, for example, that if you're a psychologist, you're a psychologist, you know, because, for example, you know, the chemistry, the biology and the processes on the background. If you're a psychiatrist, you're a psychiatrist because, you know, there is even more medical experience there. But for example, if you're a coach, you did some training, you learn some communication techniques, be a coach, but don't call yourself then a psychologist, you know? For me, for example, if I see myself to work in the kind of human capital, human engagement field, I'm fine. You know, I if I find myself that mm, maybe human, you know, human engagement is you know more approachable for me and i find it more interesting and then i feel like developing there and learn about communication techniques there i will if i feel myself more you know interested in the digital means of communication then i'll go in you know in digital communication digital marketing i'll expand my knowledge there 
but you know it doesn't harm other people and doesn't harm me because you still need to know where kind of your 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 field goes um, yeah. if, if you know what I mean for example uh, but if you're a coach and you call yourself a psychologist without having a background of psychology then you harm yourself and a person and this is unethical for me so that could be a problem both ways you need to understand what you give how you know how ex- experience your art what you give and what exactly the person wants from you and if it doesn't harm anyone i mean there's so many titles today there's so many new professions you know they appear i think because ai also affects and professions become shaped expanded with soft skills because what else can we do if technology is taking over the only thing we can complement to the job market is soft skills Mm-hmm. So you come up with a lot of new fields and professions. And if that's what you know society needs, then it's fine. Indeed. Uh, as you mentioned, right now, we are having lots of categories at universities. And these categories are getting also dissected to, to, to be as subcategories. You know, right now, I don't even know what I'm going to work with. What am I good at? I'm yeah. good at several and many stuff. But if you want to name you, what am I good at to, to consider it as work? You know, I will just stand in front of you like speechless and no idea. Mm. I think it's, uh, you know, it's our reality that no one prepared us for and we also were not thinking about i think it was kind of easy with the previous generation you know you you study a field you know that this is the job you're gonna do because you studied this field and you find the job exactly in the market today uh, everything is quite whack you need to um it's more like <laughs> um if I say before, it maybe used to be narrow. Now it's more broad. I don't know if it's uh, better or worse. I think it's just different approaches to the job market. Yeah, maybe it's how you maybe it's how you market yourself in the exactly. in the market. It's it's up exactly. to you right now. It's open exactly. sources, just like any algorithm. <laughs> Put exactly. your Put the the what's called the the variables and hope for the best. You're saying absolutely right because if before it was you know okay it's up to employer you know to define your job today it's more up to you to define your job and it can be approach where you have so many perspectives you can be so much creative you have so many opportunities but at the same time it's also challenging because the job competition the market competition becomes incredibly high okay so uh what would you change in the dynamics of teaching at lund university you know beside the the apartheid situation I was missing the intercultural part in teaching from Swedish professors. Yeah, yeah. And and by the way, right now in the university, there is, uh, beside economics, they uh, give you also a course about intercultural work at the office. I'm, I'm starting to, to get that into yeah, my head. Yeah, but... To um, understand. <laughs> Isn't it intercultural approach to work in the office, meaning that you need to learn Swedish culture? Well, uh, I guess it depends. Maybe it's in English and just like how to 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 have any knowledge about how to work with uh, different ethnicities at mm. one job atmosphere or something like that. Maybe I don't know. I never had that course. It's hard to evaluate. Uh, I think the um, initiative is great. It depends how it is executed. So, you know, this kind of all these courses doesn't matter if it's intercultural, if it's interlinguistic. The danger is there that one culture can take over. And I think in this specifically, it's important to remember that you do not teach one culture how to behave. You learn about differences between culture. Any advice uh, for incoming freshmen? 
who is listening to us? Is it foreign students or uh, we talk about... Uh, since we are living in Sweden and since we are speaking English, so yes, it's the foreign students, mm. not the Swedish mm. people. And this is so ironically, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Swedes do not need my uh, kind of expertise because, you know, they learn all this uh, uh, social student life approaches from school and from society. And they, you know, they already crack those codes for international students who come, let's say, abroad, by abroad, I mean, not from the Nordic countries, because Nordic countries still have, still have some similarities. So uh, I would say in other countries, but Nordic. I think that you need to be really open as much as you can. It, you know, it should actually mean what it means, but not from the thought that, you should express yourself as much as you want. It's up to a person to express or not. But open in the terms that you need to be prepared for different cultural shocks. And shock does not necessarily mean bad, but you need to be open in your mind. For a cultural uh, class. Learning. I would, let, let's call it cultural learning. <laughs> I think oh. it's a um, positive narrative. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I guess uh, I hear what I want to hear because you just gave it to me on a pragmatic dish. Like, mm -hmm. it is what it is and you need to adapt. Yeah, I mean, accept this and then see if you can change it. Great. Yeah. If you can, then make it your perk. Just what Viviana said to me, actually. Mm. Yeah. I guess it's time to jump for your actually pretty lovely masters. And like, you know, you never cease to amaze me. Actually, <laughs> it's it's so extensive, comprehensive, and it's so mesmerizing to me. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much Sarah, for your feedback. And I'm really happy that you found it like that. I think it's important to mention that my master was about uh, specifically migrant women, specifically in Sweden, and specifically what the opportunities are for them to integrate and I want to stress to integrate not to assimilate not to put their background their heritage away and become Swedes to integrate in the society meaning that they can bring their background by learning the new culture and make it a new combination for themselves and since I started communication the approach was so how it is communicated what are the communication channels? Uh, is the information accessible? And do actually people who need this information, though the target audience, the migrant women, receive this information? Do they really know how to use this information? And is this information useful indeed? So uh, does it really benefit migrant women? So that was kind of all the questions I was having in my head when I was writing my, my thesis. Good point. You have pointed to the fact that integration doesn't mean that you just dissolve into a new society and forget everything. It means that this society has, uh, let's say, high rate of amnesty that it would accept you with the shape you are and maybe then meet each other halfway through. Mm -hmm. Indeed. We should talk about bridges, you know, then integration happens, but it's, it's hard because the host society cannot see you from the perspective of home society. Because when you come to a different culture, you went through a certain experience, right? Why people leave their homes. Of course, it can be to get a better life, opportunities, uh, maybe... It's a higher paid job or maybe to learn new cultures and get experience and then you go and, you know, you get mm -hmm. uh, international education diploma or maybe climate change. You know, it makes you move and you find new places. And it's important to, t to think that 
Migration is not only international. People also migrate within the country, and that's also migration because we are different from north to south, from west to east. We are different because we are shaped by the conditions, by, you know, by the environment and etc. Also by the language. All these small nuances, you know, all these small things. And uh, of course, war. Of course, war makes people leave their homes. And uh, you go through certain, you know, challenges. And when you come to the culture, you, you're a different person. But the culture who hosts you, they didn't have the same experience as you, you know? They did not go through those challenges. So they have quite, um, I would say, flat picture when your picture is, you know, oh, this can be this. Oh, I need to consider that. Oh, that can mean 10 different things. One for the host culture, this means only this, you know? So I would, what I want to say that a person with a migrant uh, background has um, kind of a big spectrum of one issue or one thing or one item. You see all the possible situations, all the possible answers. And um, the host society does not because it has certain rules as every society, every organization, we have certain rules, right? And we follow them. When we go outside those rules, we learn something new. So it's understandable when it's hard for a person, you know, who had a different experience, who were staying home to understand a person who came from outside, who left home, because we talk about so much different living experiences. And uh, this is exactly where the problem is happening. Yeah, yeah. I guess this is the, the, the whole thing that the communication gap. But sometimes as refugees, we sometimes we put ourselves in the blaming situation. And sometimes we see that the society that received us also having the greatest share of who to blame. Since there is something that you don't judge a book by its cover just because mm. if, like if, if we said like uh, the media was a framing a couple mm. of incidents, mm. several incidents that it would yeah. affect on the <laughs> overall feedback mm. about the, mm. how refugees are, which is something it's easier to judge than to give a, a chance. Especially here in Sweden, maybe mm-hmm. because it's it's hard to establish a, a communication as soon as possible with the Swede, maybe. Uh, I think in part what I want to emphasize that my studies were based on the individuals who complement with their aid to help migrant women integrate. Uh, because why it's important to distinguish, because when we talk about individuals, we talk about person intentions. When we talk about media, we talk about certain vision and not all media are independent. So what is important to remember here, when you see a certain message from certain media, it's important to understand who this message is actually coming from. Is it a political party which fulfilling its own goal? Is it a certain organization that creates propaganda? So there's so many questions to ask. And of course, when we talk about organizational communication or political communication, it's different. It has its own filters. It has its own, you know, limitations or angles. It is never objective. I mean, that it was to do with people. We are not objective. And that's why it's so easy to get manipulated uh, because it's all about trust. Like what kind of trust we create, who we create this trust with. And if there's a high trust with, uh, between civilians and uh, parties or organizations or governmental structures, then, you know, trust is on top of the pyramid. But if you have a lower trust, then you're, you know, more, um, I would say, more conscious, you're more, you're questioning more, you know, you, you're become more analytical, you start like figuring out, you know, why I'm hearing this, why this is coming from. I'm not saying that trust between civilians, high trust between civilians and the government is bad. No, it's great, because that's what makes system work. 
but when it comes to um, messages, media messages on the topic of migration, here it becomes an issue because it's so easy to put the situation in the wrong light and uh, easy to create xenophobic attitude. And this becomes dangerous. Yeah. Do you think that the type of how media is framing the, the Ukrainian case would affect on the relationship between immigrants themselves in Sweden? Like, would it affect it in a negative way? How is the relationship between, mm. let's say, Ukrainian people and the other immigrants? I would say that people who have an opportunity to help now, Ukrainian refugees, and do, it is amazing. It is individual effort. It is a good intention. And this is amazing. So here we come with, you know, every individual who makes a decision. But in terms of politics, I think it does. It affects right now and it has a negative effect for other migrants. Not between intergovernmental relations of Ukrainian refugees, but the situation, the war in Ukraine and the mass migration flows today from Ukraine today showing us that there are double standards and the um, situation is not the same for everyone. For example, we're all aware about the migration crisis, so-called, in 2015 with Syrian refugees. And uh, I would like to call all these processes more like irregular flows of migration. And doesn't matter in, in which amount it comes when it comes when people try to escape war. I guess back in 2015, the, the numbers were so drastical. Yeah. And at the same time, those numbers may be projected on the thing that Sweden also, uh, the amount received over the, the years has also projected the worst rate of integration in all the European Union when it comes to integration between immigrants mm. and the country. I think what is important to remember here that even though EU has the overall EU, uh, not subnational, but um, like supranational migration law, every country has its own migration law. So it, it kind of a complicated bureaucratic system and uh, that you need to follow EU law and then you need to integrate it in your country law and make it work. So it's hard here to take an example, you know, of all countries together. It still should be done separately each country uh, its own example if talking about sweden it is important to mention that swedes had the best intention and uh, they were helping uh, helping syrian refugees to uh, have an access to the society as fast and as much as they could where for example right now ukrainian uh, refugees are having very limited access to the system in comparison to what syrians got but the issue to me, what happened was exactly the cultural gap. Because if we do not learn about the culture, you know, who we host, our expectations do uh, not become met. And uh, you become disappointed and you become um, maybe devastated and frustrated and specifically the situation with Syrians were that there were different cultural values. Some of them were not understood. Some of them were understood. Some of them were not acceptable. And here the problems start when if we take Ukrainian refugees, the culture is closer. So the culture has more similarities. So it seems like it's easier to understand and it has a different attitude. I guess this is where the how false leadership may mm. encumber the process of communication and mm -hmm. as consequently leads to communication breakdown. Mm -hmm. in, let's say in the, here in the case of immigration, that it may lead immigrants to, to a type of alienation and segregation, uh, which is that a, a thing that you mentioned in your 
and your dissertation that how the authentic leaders' communications mm-hmm. help to shape mm-hmm. the meaning and the influence groups. Indeed. Indeed. And why, why I'm stressing authenticity there? Because I believe that integration and learn about integration should come not only with positive examples, but also with negative examples. People should know where they can fail. People should know what kind of issues they will meet because they need to know how to tackle them. It's so much important to mention negative experience because it gives you a broader perspective because then you're informed. It doesn't, you know, make you feel unprepared and shocked and having this kind of mutual, uh, uh, this uh, kind of ambiguous, sorry, ambiguous condition, you know, where, okay, but I heard that this is like that. In fact, in reality, it's absolutely opposite. What should I do now? It is so important to stress both. And um, it not necessarily says that having positive examples and negative examples, only positive example is good and only negative example is bad, or, you know, the combination of both positive example and negative example of authentic leaders, actually being authentic, sharing that authenticity, which is based on their personal experience, on real examples, gives people real tools, broadens their understanding, empowers them to go through those challenges because they know that someone did and it worked. Yeah, regarding that, I would, uh, I would just sh- want to shed the light of, oh, like on the thing that uh, you that takes most of your uh, masters that the women are more authentic than us men and they care <laughs> more like towards immigrants. God damn it, we care too and we have emotion. <laughs> no, no but don't. it's we not don't. about. It's <laughs> not about. Um, it's not about caring. Um, to a certain extent, there are two different theories. You know, there are two different theories oppose each other, which says that, you know, uh, women are more capable of um, emotional uh, expression than men. It doesn't say that men does not have that. Um, but, uh, it's more, let's say, it's more uh, natural to them. I guess it's biologically because of the oxygen. Probably. Uh, yeah. It's hard to yeah. say that was a research. Uh, there are other researchers who say that, no, we are the same. We are not segregated by me, men and women. We are capable of all emotions in the same amount. I think that women are more of relating emotionally to some other someone uh, else experience, some other's experience. And it especially becomes strong women especially become strong in their capability of relating to someone else's emotional experience when it's a woman. Because we create this relation based on different signs. And gender, whether we want it or not, becomes one of the signs when we create the relation. So in my research, in my study, that was specifically important to mention. I guess that it would be different if it would be uh, mixed research, but my research was specifically research on women to women, you know, so that's important to uh, to say. You know, there's not even need to, to, to explain that. You can see how we men are so drowned with uh, the, the battle of uh, testosterone mm. and... I don't I, even need to, to, to say any example. Everyone would pop up with Putin and etc. Humans are difficult creatures. And uh, um, and I think, you know, the question of testosterone is specifically different in the context of different cultures. And yeah. uh, that is also something to bear in mind. It just proves that, you know, we are not the same. We have, we're so unique, all of us. And what would make the world, you know, less complex, softer, more with willing to active listening, more with the willing of understanding, is if everyone would actually make an effort to become conscious about themselves, you know? 
about how they feel, what emotions, why they feel these emotions, what exactly triggers mm. those emotions, you know? Yeah. It would help it a person to understand person better. He's herself and actually the other person. That would be the beginning of solving the cultural gap, communication gap, this kind of conflict. I uh, believe that we might reach that point, but um, we still kind of... Um, it's in our DNA, you know, to divide the world, us and them. It's so strong, you know, it helped us survive. So it's hard it's to... storytelling. Don't forget that. It's a storytelling also. Of today, yes. Today, I'm thinking, you know, like ages ago, you know, it was us and them. It helped us survive, right? Like we knew exactly whose territory it is. And, you know, um, today we live in a different world. And, but to me, it seems like that the system around us develops faster than we are, you know, if you know what I mean. So our instincts are still very strong and the society, the system itself develops faster than our instincts. Mm. Mm, exactly. You know, the technology is beating us. Yeah, so badly. And the thing is that you touched on one important thing, which is the meta-awareness of our, our emotions and why we're having those emotions. It's, I guess it comes with a, with a high price, with a dear price to, to, to get to have this meta-awareness. Yeah. It's not easy. And people no. don't, pre don't prefer that, I guess. No, it's uncomfortable. It makes you feel uncomfortable, you know, and it's normal. And of course, person wants to avoid that. So it's a big work. It's a big challenge. Which take us to the important thing, the, the empowerment of the immigrant woman that you talked about. Mm. The, the, the need to empower immigrant women to reinforce them and reinforce their, uh, their self, let's call it uh, their self-esteem and that they can start over again. And there is people mm -hmm. who would support them to do that. And you mm -hmm. also, before we give an example, I would love to hear from you more about that. Empowerment plays a crucial role here because among with uh, the cultural clash, adaptation issues, orientation in a new society, it comes with anxiety. Uh, you might feel powerless. You might not find the proper and the right support at at the beginning and um, you can easily feel lost. I mean, you know, it's, it's not that big thing that you need to visualize in the context of migration. These things happen with everyone. You change the job, you have the same feelings. You change the city, you might find the same feelings. It's the change that we humans do not like. And not everyone reacts properly on this change from the context that, you know, it leads to the better outcome. So I think here it's super crucial to talk about empowerment because it is a surviving question in the context that a person to have a self-esteem, a person needs to feel independent, to know that the person can rely on herself in this case, that yeah. a person is capable to achieve uh, her goals in this case, and the person needs tools. And that would create a new identity, which would complement to the whole society, because we need to remember that identities, they are not stable, they are changing. We are adapting, we are adjusting, we are changing, and our identity is also changing. And that empowerment brings the will to integrate. I myself, uh, I can't find myself uh, integrated and until I feel there is a suitable amount of self-reliance on myself, not even on CSN when it comes to, mm. you know, the labor market, uh, me starting to really integrating in the job market. This is to me uh, right now, uh, <laughs> you know, most of my anxiety coming from this part. 
feeling that mm-hmm. I haven't yet got to that point, which is something you also pointed at in uh, a study that you mentioned mm-hmm. about how Ethiopian female immigrants in Israel had, let's say, uh, uh, a healthy integration in the labor market, which caused by, let's say, the solidarity of the, the local people with helping them mm-hmm. to, to get this, you know, mm-hmm. this serenity of solidarity and mm-hmm. support. Israeli example is very unique uh, because Israel actually one of the one of the uh, minority countries that created the integration program, not the integration course, not the um, language course separately. You know, here you can get the language course. There you can you know learn about kind of bureaucracy, some ten lectures about how the system works or whatever, or more like, oh, yeah, we translated our website in this language so you can read. No, Israel created the integration program. It's an enhanced, comprehensive approach where an immigrant can go through the whole process of integration. It's about having integration to the system, it's about learning the language together. It's about having training courses, skill building courses, and it's all managed in one program when the outcome is you finding a job. And I guess uh, even if the Swedish government, aka Regeringen, have uh, had you know, lapsed their, uh, you know, their programs there in the the job. But uh, the thing is that there were so loopholes in those programs, integrating programs that I can name it uh, for you until tomorrow and I wouldn't be finished because lots of loopholes and backdoors in the integrating system that you really think that those people don't care. In Sweden, uh, the thing is that um, there is no uh, national level of such program, you know, because in Israel, we talk about the national level of such integration programs for migrants. In Sweden, there is not. Uh, I know there are some organizations who uh, does it uh, and it's voluntarily, it's their own decision to take that challenge and to help people uh, there are some organizations that are goal oriented to integrate in the Swedish market but they're more um, more like coaching mentoring kind of organizations they help you of course language culture code nuances but it's not the national level the uh, reach is small uh, because it's still private organizations who do it um, and um, they're limited in their capacity um, and as well that this organization do not get a big publicity a lot of migrants in Sweden specifically they do not know about such programs neither I exactly it's it's not public so you don't get this information easily like you know oh here's the website where I can get this information and I can access this you know these organizations there is not not such a thing like that in Sweden and uh, to me it's also quite um, surprising why there is no such program on a national level in Sweden because Sweden has all the puzzles to create such integration program but somehow these organizations are not connected with each other (laughs) autonomous functioning actually there is a famous say no idea if it's in Sweden as in in general or just among uh, immigrants that you don't know about something until you ask yeah. No, no one will tell you. True. This is about Sweden, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so let's move to the, the saucy part of your master's dissertation. Mm-hmm. It's about your qualitative approach mm-hmm. with the method, which 
I like it. I love it. You know, <laughs> like I, I did my, I myself did several qualitative approaches, but I would never have the balls to blend two things at the same time. <laughs> Feminist lens with the qualitative approach. <laughs> that was juicy. <laughs> um, yeah. Can you I tell must, me a little bit about must, uh, your yeah. uh, 10, uh, participants, uh, their backgrounds, and w what is the data that they enriched you with? Um, I must admit that I'm indeed touched in very sensitive topic in Sweden and in overall. So um, I cannot reveal my data, obviously. Uh, so I will talk in the general terms about them. And uh, I need to say that it was still COVID restrictions. So it was super difficult to reach people. It was super difficult to find people uh, because there were not non-networking events, you know. So I, I was relying only on social media and on the snowball effect, to be honest. Can you explain to them the snowball effect? Yeah, snowball is? effect. So it's, for example, you reach out one to one person, another person, you know, shares information and it comes on and on. And then in the end, the, uh, you know, information got get back to you. So this is a kind of uh, uh, rolling thing. Um, and I think if I would have more time, I would collect you know, bigger amount of data. But because, you know, a program has certain criterias, uh, qualitative uh, approach, meaning that I conducted interviews, physical interviews with people. It also has certain criterias. So data should be um, quite unified, if I can say that. So my data were specifically uh, women, uh, from Arabic-speaking countries, uh, because then I could, you know, see a pattern. So there were certain criteria applied uh, with certain requirements for my uh, thesis, and um, there were people who went through different paths. Some had super positive examples. Some had quite sad examples of integration in a Swedish society. Some met certain actions of discrimination towards them. But the one thing that united all of them, that they found the path to overcome that challenge and um, found a way to grow and to apply the best they saw from the Swedish culture on their daily life. I guess it's the hardest thing after all that, you know, without even, um, because as you said, you, you, you need a unified uh, opinion from maybe not from the 10, but mostly from the at least seven of them without tampering with uh, what they said, like their comments or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, can you give me a resolution? Like uh, what I can make a conclusion? What kind of conclusion I can make? Uh, yes, yes, please. Is there any conclusion about your whole dissertation? No, not conclusion by the, the study. Conclusion, you know, uh, let's say a subjective conclusion. <laughs> I think all conclusions are subjective, you know, because... You no, know, your subjective conclusion. <laughs> my subjective conclusion is that... Uh, Communicating migration, communicating integration of migrants needs to be improved. More story should be told. More kind of um, attention should be dragged, but equally or negative and positive. It's uneven when we only talk about migrants when something bad happens in the society. Inspiring stories in this case should be shared to the host society, what great results migrants managed to achieve in the host society. So what I saw that, you know, for the host society, it's quite a quasi picture created that migrant migration has a connotation with a negative effect. And on use, it's mainly this. When migrants have a connotation 
of the host society only, you know, in the positive way, and they do not expect the challenges they meet after, and that makes them feel quite frustrated and lost. So I saw imbalance of how positive and negative news examples, story, stories are shared and told. And it's like we see Swedish society only as a positive example and migrant society as a negative example. And I think it should be balanced. Positive stories of successful examples of migrants integrating in the society should be told. And negative stories of Swedish society and issues that aren't Swedish society towards migration should be told. I guess uh, you said the, the right things in the right time. You know, to me as an immigrant, even if I wasn't, even if I wasn't a female, but at least, you know, in, in every man, there is that feminist side as <laughs> at least. So uh, I guess you touched on many sensitive areas that would take in consideration the status. Maybe some of us feel alienated, maybe some of us feel integrated, but there is that, let's say, uh, collective feeling that mm. there is something we need to work on mm-hmm. as all. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, Elzaveta, for this amazing interview. And uh, I want to hear a final word, please. <laughs> Thank you, Nawar, so much. It was a pleasure. I am happy that I could share my thoughts. I hope that I will evoke an interest in the audience. I hope that I will evoke emotions in the audience and any emotion is good because when we feel we have in, you know, a hunger to find out, to learn. And uh, I just hope that I help people to expand uh, their vision on things. Maybe for some who might say that I'm wrong, then maybe it will be a food for thinking, an approach for questioning, uh, because it's uncomfortable to admit if a person is wrong. And I hope for someone, uh, I can be an inspiration and someone can find a motivation and support in our interview. Yeah, so I just hope, you know, I touched both. And if I did, I'm happy. Well, I can already hear them falling for you, Elzaveta. Thanks for everyone who is still listening to this hot, steamy episode. And uh, I would love to see you on the next episode of The College Experience. Bye-bye. Bye. He started hanging out, selling bags in the projects, checking the young chicks, looking for hit and run prospects. He was fascinated by material objects, but he understood money never bought respect. He built a reputation because he could hustle and steal, but got locked once and didn't hesitate to squeal. So criminals he chilled with didn't think he was real. You see, me and niggas like this have never been equal. I don't project my insecurities on other people. He fiended for props like addicts with pipes and needles, and so he felt he had to prove to everyone he was evil, a feeble-minded young man with infinite potential, the product of a ghetto-bred capitalistic mental, coincidentally dropped out of school to sell weed, dancing with the devil, smoked until his eyes would bleed, but he was sick of selling trees and gave in to his greed.